Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology Church. My name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading the sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, so this evening, we are reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you or if you don't have a Bible, we do have some um, in the backs of the pews in front of you, the blue Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that as our gift to you. And of course, you can also look it up and follow along on your phone. So once again, we are reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. Amen, amen, amen. How's it going, Doxology Church? Good to see y'all. Y'all aren't responsive, so I'll be responsive to myself. It really is, it really is good to see y'all. Uh, thanks to Steve for inviting me back. And uh, I mean, what else would I do on a Sunday evening except come and fellowship with you all? Um, glad to be here. Uh, if you can notice by uh, our liturgy, but also by the text that uh, the narrator just read, we're going to talk about unity tonight. And uh, that's pretty uh, a, a pretty appropriate topic to consider the day and time that we're in, all the, the national conversation that's going on in our country about all the ways that we as a people, uh, to include the church, can be divided. But it's a really appropriate topic because um, it's what this whole book is about. Uh, I think the church at Corinth gets a bad rap. I mean, we, we call them the messed up church or the church that has all these all these problems, and that does encompass the majority of the book. But if you if if you just go back a couple verses from where we started reading tonight, Paul starts off by giving this church a lot of compliments. They have a, in, in fact, I would say the church at Corinth is it's not unlike every other church. They they have some things that they do well, and Paul gives them accolades in regards to that in verses four through nine in the in the text previous to what we'll cover tonight. And then they have some areas that they uh, that they're they're not united; they're divided over. And so that's what we're going to concentrate on for a few minutes tonight. I'm going to pray real quick, and then uh, and we'll get going, going going in our text. Father, we're grateful to be here tonight. Thank you for the the privilege of worship, Lord. As we think about coming together as a people under the banner of Christ, uh, this is a a get to. You encourage us to do it, but it's not a have to. And so, Lord, we're grateful that we get to do this, that we get to come and fellowship with one another. God, we expect that your spirit will meet us and that it will uh, illumine the word. And God, that we will left here uh, with the sense that we have met with you. But even as we say that, Lord, there's things going on in our world where people uh, kind of like us, but dissimilar to us, don't get this privilege. They don't get to come 
uh, without oppression or persecution and worship you freely, opening their Bibles, talking about the things of God. And so, Lord, forgive us where we take these moments for granted. And Lord, help, help us, help those around us to enjoy the freedoms of the people of God. Uh, We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us in your word tonight. I pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're we're, we're talking about unity, and I know you guys have been in Psalms, so I appreciate Steve giving me uh, the, 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 the freedom to just talk about whatever I wanted to talk about, and this sort of seemed to be uh, on my heart to talk about, and so hopefully uh, there will be something for all of us here. The interesting thing as Paul begins to talk to this church at Corinth is he's making an appeal to them. Uh, he's not commanding them, saying, hey, uh, hey, get your act together, or when I come and visit you next, you're going to get it. Like parents sometimes talk to their kids that way, or maybe that's the way just my parents talk to me and my brother that way. He's appealing to them as brothers and sisters, as really fellow believers. This is a family matter, but at the same time as Paul comes to them kind of as a, as a big brother or as a father figure in their lives, he comes to them with a sense of authority. A few verses up, Paul will remind them, hey, I, I didn't make myself an apostle, Jesus did. And with that, I carry the weight kind of 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 not your salvation, so to speak, but uh, I, I, I carry the weight of your discipleship, and there's some things that you're doing wrong that I need to call into attention. And that's really what he's doing. He reminds them, hey, I'm an apostle. Jesus made me that way. And so he's going to address some serious matters of deep division among them, and he reminds him of his roots as an apostle because he wants what he says to them to carry that kind of authority. Paul, uh, this is the, you know, the first of two letters to the church at Corinth in our Bibles. Scholars tell us there's actually four letters uh, to, to Corinth. And by the wisdom of God, we only have two uh, that we can glean from. But what this letter uh, prompts is that there was correspondence from Corinth that preceded this where the church at Corinth, a church that Paul actually planted at some point before this, this letter, uh, where they ask him questions. And as we peek down at verse 11, there's a reference to uh, a letter that Paul received from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe's people are, but apparently this letter clues Paul into what's really going on. We actually don't even know who Chloe is. Outside of this text right here, Chloe is not mentioned in any other Bible passage, but we do have some ideas about her status because it says she has people. I mean, do you have people? Like outside of your, your family and all that, like many of us don't have people. And so very likely Chloe's an influential person, influential person because she has people. Uh, Bible scholars uh, say that she's likely a businesswoman of sorts that has connections to both Corinth and Ephesus. Ephesus is where Paul is uh, as he writes this letter. And as a business person, uh, Chloe very likely was back and forth between these two locations. She very likely was at some point a member, a part of the congregation at Corinth and had been a leader there. And so Chloe and her people having ties to Corinth and the church that are there, uh, sort of discern there's some things going on that aren't quite right. And because they're in Ephesus, probably they do what makes sense to do. What do they do? They go tell Paul. 
And so Paul is able to read between the lines in the letter from Chloe's people that he receives uh, and discern what's really going on. And what's really going on is a whole lot of division. Um, Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul is uh, appealing to this church, this congregation of people, and the appeal is that they agree. Paul wants the people of God in the church to just get along. Um, All right, so I don't know if y'all pay attention. Football season is back upon us. I didn't play football, but I like watching it. And uh, just the words that Paul uses here, he's used some of these words in other places in his other letters, particularly the words when he says that he wants them to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's in verse 10. Get the picture of uh, an offensive or a defensive line. They're in their three-point stance, and the, the, the quarterback hikes the, uh, the center, hikes the ball to the quarterback. And if you're in offense, here's, what, here's, here's that stance. They're like shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side, and they're trying to uh, move the ball down the field and score. And if you're on the defensive line, you're also in a three-point stance, shoulder-to-shoulder with other 300-pound, very quick guys trying to prevent that offense from doing that. And this is Paul's appeal. He's like, get your act together. I want you to be as closely linked and in sync to to reach the target, not to score a touchdown, but to do that which God has called you to do. And that's for the church to be united under the banner of the gospel. So that's Paul's idea for them. He wants the church, of the, the people of God, to be in harmony. And even as he says this, being in agreement, being in harmony doesn't mean he wants them to necessarily hold hands and sing kumbaya. Not that that's wrong. Like before service today, uh, the leaders and the, the volunteers here, we all got together. We weren't holding hands, singing kumbaya, but we, I mean, we came together and we prayed, right? And, and this is in a group that probably had some diversity of thought. Some, uh, there were different people from different backgrounds represented in this group. And yet we came together praying for you as you would enter the day, praying for things going on in our country and praying for our gathering here today. We were gathered under the banner of Jesus. And Paul wanted that same thing for, uh, for these people in Corinth. And so it suggests that being in agreement uh, means we work together in complementary ways. And why should we do that? Because it's an outworking of the gospel. The gospel is big enough that, that, that all of us from disparate places and uh, trains of thought, that, that uh, as big as the world is, that we can come together in our diversity to, to, to express the tapestry of, of what God has made and still agree on some major things. And that's what Paul wants to happen here. Being in agreement doesn't mean that we're homogenous uh, as long as what unifies us is in Jesus. In verse 11, Paul learns from Chloe's people that the Corinthians were divided, but it actually wasn't a problem of theology like we find in many parts of, of the Bible. It wasn't about politics or race like we see in our, in our culture, in our country today. They were divided over human preferences, okay? They, they were taking sides over kind of petty things. They divided themselves uh, in regards to their opinion about their leaders. And that should sound familiar to us as well, given the day that we're in. And so if a parade were marching through Corinth and the church was a, were a part of it, these, uh, uh, these Christians in Corinth, then they would have had banners up and behind them would have been little groups of people. 
that had their sign and they would have been pledging their allegiance to, uh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and maybe even a few quietly, kind of in the back, kind of humbly, I follow Jesus. They were all uh, catering to these fractured, uh, fractured groups in the church. Paul uses an interesting word in verse 10, and it's the word divisions. And that word can be translated schisms. The word specifically means to cut apart, to, to actually chop up. And I think Paul uses that word divisions because this is the this is the accurate picture, but more importantly, this is the, the severity of the divisions that were going on in the church at Corinth. And so the big deal is that if the church is the body of Christ, that picture that Paul paints in all of his letters, then it's meant to be whole, a, a whole body with Jesus as as the head. It's equivalent to saying, all right, let's take Jesus' body, let's put him on the chopping block and just start chopping him up. And I can tell some of you are like, you're picturing that, and it sounds kind of gross, right? I mean, who would want to do that? But that therein is the picture. A chopped up body actually doesn't work. And so if we're Christ's blood-bought body, we're supposed to be unified. In fact, in a few minutes when I conclude, we're going to take communion together, and communion, in communion, the picture of it is we're actually reminding ourselves that Jesus' body has already been broken. His blood has been already spilled, and we don't want to bring that about again. In fact, quite the opposite, Jesus' broken body and his blood spilled are the things that brings us together into unity. And that's the unity that makes us one in Christ. And so these Corinthians, uh, over time, had divided themselves up into camps, into fractures of people. They had divided themselves up, really, into cliques. And uh, apparently what was going on was uh, enough of a distraction for Paul and Chloe's people that Paul thought it would inhibit their witness to a watching world. So what does Paul do? He challenges, challenges them with the truth. And here's what he says about the truth. What I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so Paul highlights, I think, four cliques in the church of Corinth. And I've given them nicknames. You've got the church of the, 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 the clique of misplaced hope. You've got the, the clique of broken value system. You've got the clique of the broken pathway. And you've got the clique of the broken path to community. And, I mean, you guys have heard of cliques before. How does a clique form, particularly how does a clique form in the, form in the first century in, in one of the first churches that ever existed. And I would tell you very simply, the click, uh, cliques then uh, form the same way that cliques form in our day as well. You have a group of people, particularly Christians, who had taken their eyes off Jesus and they had done the thing that becomes natural for many of us. They had um, given themselves over to affinity. They had taken sides. They had done the thing that was easiest for them to do. And in taking their eyes off Jesus, they put them instead on their favorite apostolic personality. And so we're going to look at these in turn. So some follow Paul. And if you follow Paul, that's the click of, of misplaced hope. These are the people who, who, uh, who see life in terms of the original, the right way of doing things. These are the OG kind of people. The, uh, so Paul is the one that planted this church, and because he set the foundation, uh, the people uh, that, that follow Paul would have placed their allegiances 
with, with him and him alone. This is the group that says, remember the good old days? Remember when it was just us and Paul? Remember that time we were, uh, like, you remember, you remember how long-winded Paul was? Remember that time we were in, uh, what's her name's house that one time, and Eutychus was on a banner on the roof, and Paul talked for so long that Eutychus fell down and, like, killed himself, and Paul had to do the Paul thing. He had to actually act, perform a miracle and, and raise him up. I mean, those were the days. That was the real church. Remember when he did this? Remember when we knew everybody? Remember when, remember when, remember when? And of course, the problem with this church, the problem with this view of the church is not remembering, because to remember what Paul had done would be to honor Paul. To remember, the, to remember all the things that you've gone through would be to reflect on where God has brought you from in the journey of your time together. That's appropriate thing to do, and I hope you guys are doing that as a church as well. The problem with this approach is, is, is a, mis- a misplaced hope. So when you say, I follow Paul, Paul's, uh, the, the, the click is, is holding on to the old ways as the right and the only way to do things. And so misplaced hope is when we end up gripping the old path so tightly that we miss any chance to embrace the future. And if you think about today, Unfortunately, 2,000 years later, we're still doing that same thing. We do this with our denominations. I'm a Baptist. I'm Reformed. I'm a Calvinist. We do this with our evangelical tribes that we love to say that we're followers of. Uh, uh, I'm a part of the Acts 29 network. I'm, the, I'm in ARC. I'm in Nine Marks. I'm in the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's why Paul will direct this church against pledging their allegiance to him. Look what he says in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so baptism in the first century was as important, probably more important, than it is in our day. It served a prominent role in the life of the early church as an outward sign of of inward repentance of sin and initiation into the Christian community. So what Paul is saying here is, as important as baptism is, it takes a backseat to the the main reason why why, why, uh, God secured Paul's... uh, Paul's allegiance on the road to Damascus to set him on this journey to, to plant the gospel in all these places. The proclamation of, of the gospel. That's the reason. And oh, by the way, being baptized in the name of anybody, you know, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Cephas or whoever has discipled you as a Christian is, uh, is not going to do you any good. Any good outside of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Doxology Church, we want to be people who are deeply committed to the, the, the historic, the original, the right way of doing things. So your church is not an island off on its own by itself. You're tied to the historic church that dates all the way back to the, the, this first church here at Corinth. And our liturgy today sort of helps us to unpack that. We sang a, a few newer songs. We sang songs that are written hundreds of years ago that connects us to uh, the historic church. But we have to be clear, the right way, the right way of doing things as a people of God is the way of Jesus. It's not the way of filling the blank any particular leader's name, even, even your pastor, right? 
It's the, it's the way of Jesus and him alone. Uh, a church that's formed by the gospel holds to the deep truths of the faith that's anchored in the person and work of Jesus, but that's also able to move and change and be a part of our watching world. And here's why. It's because the watching world has questions. The watching world is hurting. The watching world is broken. And if the church of today is so fixated on what we did yesterday and the rituals and the traditions of our past, then the church can't respond to the very needs of the communities that God has placed the church today to do, to, to, to respond to. Some follow Paul. Some also follow Apollos. And Apollos is the click of the broken value system. And this is the click that wants everything that's new, that's talented, that's, that's gifted, and that's who Apollos was. Back in Acts 19, Apollos comes on the scene, and when Paul's, Apollos comes on the scene, uh, he stays there in Corinth and come, be, becomes the, the talk of the town because of his gifts. At the same time, Paul moves to Ephesus, and he stays there for like a year and a half, starting churches and, and building up that congregation there. And so here's, here's the word on the street about Apollos. He's this gifted order. He's charismatic. He's a great expositor of the scriptures. He's an awesome communicator. Everybody's flocking to him. Kind of like Steve, right? Didn't it just make you sick? No, no, it didn't make us sick. We're drawn to that kind of stuff. We love people who are gregarious and outgoing, but also who can communicate deep truths of the faith seemingly with ease to us and stir us to want to be like them. And I think that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is the world has no shortage of really gifted, kind of influential people. In fact, the Internet has made uh, access to to people around the world who are gifted to, to motivate us and encourage us, uh, even in the scriptures, uh, easily. Uh, so much so that it's kind of not a good thing that we can access all these people because we become consumers. We, we go to the internet to, uh, uh, to replace uh, the, our, our, what, what we should be getting from a local church. We go to the internet and we're like, like shopping churches or shopping the best speakers and, and presenters around the world. And so Paul rebukes the Corinthians for chasing spiritual pizzazz, flash, and bling. He's like, come on, don't do that. The gospel affirms a spiritual hunger that we should want to drink deeply and eat richly from, from God's word. That's a good thing. We should want to hear from those who can uh, rightly divide the word of truth. It's a good thing to listen to gifted spiritual voices that can challenge us, inspire us, and shape us as we're being discipled. I, I think that's the whole point of, of your pastor and your leaders inviting other people into your pulpit so that we can glean from them, other people to share from you. But ultimately, when we have a click that says, I follow Apollos, it's a, a broken value system. Because the kingdom of God is not about how tweetable, elegant, or winsome something is. Jesus assigns its value, and with him, the first are last. It's the, it's the humble that get honored. It's the interdynamics of the heart that no one sees that matters most to Jesus. And, and, and that's so different than how the world espouses things. And so a church that's formed by the gospel is eager to hear fresh ways of communicating the untruths of Scripture but it values the communication as long as it makes much of Jesus and not some particular communicator. I think that's the difference.
Some follow Paul. Some follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, and that's the click of the broken pathway. Obviously, Cephas here is the Apostle Peter, one of the, the, the inner three, one of those that's closest to, to, to Jesus. We don't know if Peter actually came to Corinth. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that he did. But even if Peter never came close to, close to Corinth, Peter was such a large, influential, uh, influential uh, figure in the early church that these Corinthians would have known who Peter was, and he would have been a, like a rock star. That's why some, that's why Paul would, uh, would say this, this phrase that some of you probably are uh, trying to follow uh, Peter. So some might have been drawn to Peter because of his Jewishness, identifying with uh, Peter's ethnicity and his culture. Some might have been drawn to Peter because of his authenticity. Uh, authenticity. Uh, Peter's my favorite character in the Bible, and, and here's why. Because Peter shows us that you can mess up, that you can fail, like, like fail in a big way, and Jesus will still love you, right? And, and I kind of need that. Some would have favored and followed Peter because of his proximity to Jesus. This is the, this is the, the celebrity, um, power figure kind of a guy. I want to get close to you because you're close to the, to the guy that knows it all and does it all. And then there was this idea of just being Jewish, of going back to the law, following it because it was written down in black and white. And you have to guess as to what you were required to do or not do. And Peter represented all of that. Peter was was very Jewish in his in his demeanor. Well, unless he was around Gentiles. Right. And, and what this suggests is, is is really the, the, the failure part of Peter that was so prominent uh, the, the, the thing that Paul uh, does with, with Peter publicly is um, reprimand him for his hypocrisy and his legalism. Remember Galatians where uh, when, when Peter's around G- uh, Gentiles, he acts very much like a Gentile. And then when the Jews come, Peter is reminded that he's a Jew and he starts acting like a Jew and he causes people to... Um, to, to go astray by the way that he carries himself in both of those camps. More particularly, Peter's a legalist, right? And, and when we fall prey to legalism, there's this temptation um, that we want the lines of faith to be very clear um, so that we do the right things when we're supposed to do it. But oftentimes that just gets us in, in, in trouble. Because it's also easy to, to fall into a workspace mentality where my effort, my labor, my commitment, my devotion that uh, en- ends up making me a good person, ends up making me a good employee, ends up making me a good church person, a good pastor, a good communicator, and so on. And of course, that's, that's missing the point. A couple verses back up, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians with these words. He says, Jesus is the one who sustains us guiltless to the end. God is faithful. And that really is the point that Paul is making with with this church. It's Jesus faithfulness that we get to bank on, not not our own. And it's really is a tactic of of the enemy to rob us of the joy of the Lord by encumbering us with with legalistic tendencies and getting us to sign up for measuring lines. So when we say I follow Cephas, it's a broken pathway because it's not about what we do. The Bible tells us it's about what Christ has already done for us. We should really desire, we should have a desire to do, 
to be found working when Christ returned. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says we are the workmanship of Christ, and he's really planned, planned ahead of time for us to do good works. But it's not the idea that our relationship with God is based on what we're doing. The gospel says our relationship is fundamentally based on what God has done for us. And here's the cool thing about, the, uh, about Scripture, about, about God himself. He's faithful even when we're not. And that gives us hope in the midst of, of our lives. Some follow Paul. Some follow Paulus, Apollos. Some follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And this is actually a click as well. It's the broken path to community. And some of you are probably like, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. Aren't we supposed to be following Jesus? And really, at face value, it, it does sound right. Like, this is like the Bible study answer, right? You're in Bible study, community group. Uh, kids ministry and the teacher asks a question and you like I, I know this you raise your hand and say like Jesus like yeah the, the answer is Jesus but in this case Paul is saying this in a negative uh, perspective uh, and it's a click and it's a click because what Paul is getting at in this context is that underneath the surface of this statement is really the height of arrogance and pride And so what Paul was uh, chastising the Corinthians on is when they say, I'm following Christ, what they really were saying is, like, like, I'm on my own. I don't have to submit to you. Uh, It's just me and God. I don't need you. I don't even need the church. It's just me and Jesus. I don't really need anybody else. And if you know enough about the Bible, if you know enough about the community of the church, that's the wrong way to look at the community of faith. Because it's not a picture of, of, uh, of what God has called us into. When God calls us individually to himself, he immerses us into the family of God. And we become members of that family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And really, anytime you think of Christianity itself, it's always plural. It's always us together with him. And so the gospel rejects a hyper-individuality that says, it's just me and God. And so a church formed rightly by the gospel is committed to living us with God, that we are part of all of this together in the community that God has formed around us. All right, so those are or four clicks in the church at Corinth. And there's something obvious about all of these clicks, and perhaps you uh, have discerned it already. And that thing that's obvious is that these are all Christian examples, right? Obviously, Paul is talking to Christians in a church in Corinth, and these are the people, uh, Christian leaders, who they have pledged their allegiance to. But I would tell you, this is not just a Christian thing. This is really a human thing. All of us uh, are following someone or something. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I would tell you, you still are following someone. If you're not a Christian, you're following some other religion. You're following Buddha. You're following Muhammad. You're following uh, Joseph Smith if you're a Mormon. If you would even claim to be an atheist, you're following the, the four horsemen. If you claim no religiosity about your life at all, say you're a tech or industry person, you're still following people. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Sheryl Sandberg, throw in politics, and we're all in trouble, right? Because, like, we're all putting our hopes in uh, a particular political personality or a political party that's going to take what we think is right about our land and our future 
uh, and, and lead us there. We're all trying to follow someone. But what I want to do in um, our few minutes is to give us the implications of these of these four clicks. And I've got three implications and then a closing statement and now I'll be done. So here's the, here's the first implication. And it's going to sound crazy given that like the, the title of my sermon is United Not Divided, right? United Not Divided. And the first implication is the church is not divided. The church is not divided. I think regardless of how we look and how sometimes we behave, Jesus did not create and build his church to be divided. There's this theological phrase that we use usually when we talk about end times, uh, and the phrase is already not yet. And what that suggests is as Christians, we live in this great theological tension where um, we already possess many of the spiritual blessings in Christ although we don't experience the fullness of those things until Christ comes back. And that kind of is the case with the picture of the church. And so if you would look at the, the, the landscape of the church, definitely in America, perhaps even the church across the world, it looks like we're really divided. We are as we're, we're part of the culture, the American culture, and we can't escape that. And naturally, because we're part of the American culture, uh, we are as divided as the American culture is. The church uh, is not an island by itself. But the reality is, and, and already not yet. We're not divided because Christ is not divided. And what is, what is said of him is true of us. We're one with him. But here's my my point. It it means really that the church at large has failed to show and tell the true story of what God is like, because the church, uh, the God, that God and his church are not divided. We're actually united. And so particularly if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would say you've experienced the church uh, being divisive and argumentative and petty. um, And we I mean, we should apologize to that, right? Because we are giving you a picture of, of what God is not like. We're telling you a lie about who God is, and we should be sorry for that. So Doxology Church, we want to be a church that, that shows the witness of the true story of what God is like, that God is one, and he's made us one with him. That's the first implication. Here's the second, and I, I love this one. It's the grace of getting caught. There, there's a message within this this whole message that could be a standalone sermon about Chloe and and her people kind of like tattling on what's going on in the church at Corinth. And it's not just tattling. This is a message of grace threaded throughout this whole letter. It is a grace of God that this church's underreported brokenness would be revealed. It is a grace of God that Paul would not leave their sin unaddressed. It is a grace of God that these things that he's surfacing surfacing would come about. And it's a good thing for their benefit. And I think it's for our benefit as well. This is great verse in Hebrews 12 that says, don't despise God's discipline because God disciplines those he loves. Isn't that scary? That, That God would somehow let our messiness, our failures, the junk of our lives kind of leak out, perhaps even become public so that he can discipline us, but more so because he loves us. And I think that's how we're, 
supposed to live together because those things of the community getting to deal with you and the things that you may struggle with would be for your benefit. Now, I can't imagine that Chloe got invited to any more parties in Corinth after it got word that that her people told Paul what was going on in Corinth. Uh, But there's a burden to bear when you're the one uh, that has to confront sin, and yet Paul is not ashamed for her. He doesn't hold back or shy away from telling the Corinthians, hey, I found this out from Chloe, and, 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 and so Chloe's the one that told me about it, but she needed to tell me, and it was right for her to do it. Paul is unashamed for Chloe. He's also unashamed for the grace of God that's going to be at work in them because he knows and, and has rebuked them because of what they've been, what's been going on, all the visions going on in the church. Here's the third and last implication, and this is a warning, and, and I think this is probably the one that's more pertinent to all of us here in the room. And it's a warning of how we might be participating in cliques. Um, here's what I want you to do. Think of the ways that you've participated and perhaps even gotten caught up in perhaps these kind of cliques. Or maybe there's a clique that's, that's unspoken that you might not even be privy to or that the Holy Spirit hasn't been gracious enough to bring up yet in how you live your lives. And so the question is, what aspect of this, this, this division, this cutting apart from the body of Christ and his church has perhaps robbed you of the relationships you're meant to enjoy? That said, so like Steve hasn't given me any inside scoop on Doxology Church. I'm not talking about this because Steve wanted me to talk about clicks at Doxology Church. I just thought this was a message that we, that we all needed to hear. That's it, Doxology Church. Um, I don't know the exact cliques, if any, that are here in your church. But I suppose that there are some here nonetheless. And how do I know that? Because I've been in the church long enough to know that. A little bit more personal. Um, so I planted a church here 10 years ago in Alexandria called Transit Church. Uh, and I led it up until January before I went into a different ministry. And I found out about eight years in that my whole church was a clique, like like the whole church. And here's why. The church was military. And uh, um, someone wasn't trying to tattle like like Chloe's people did. But a, a, a young man came to the leaders in our church and he was trying to leave our church uh, because he said getting into the culture of this church is so difficult because um, because everyone here is so military minded. The language, the lingo, uh, just everything about it. I feel like I'm, uh, I, I can't even get into a conversation because the military people, spouses included, have all of these acronyms and way of life that I just can't punch through it. And so what do I do? I usually just back up and I twiddle my thumbs and pretend like I'm doing something all by myself. Um, and that hurt for me to to know that. And so, the, again, the warning is be on a lookout for any dynamic that creates clicks or makes other people, particularly new people, feel like they don't belong or they don't fit into your culture. Lastly, here, and I'll close with this, why does this matter? Look at verse 17. Paul writes, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we all come to come to faith through Jesus. He forgives us of our sin. We're reconciled to God. Uh, We owe our life to to Christ. He's the one who dies for our sins and brings us into forgiveness and cleansing. It's not Apollos. 
It's not Peter. It's not Paul. It's not whomever discipled you and led you into the faith. And so we're indebted to Jesus. And, And when we espouse a group or a clique over and above our allegiance to Jesus, what we're doing is ultimately distracting, as Paul says, from the cross of Christ. And so my exhortation to you, doxology, is let's not lose our awe of what the church is. We're not founded on the gifts of amazing and fabulous preachers and teachers, as good as they might be, and even as edifying and helpful as they might be. We're founded on Jesus and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for your word. I pray that it would uh, not return void and have the effect that it it needs to have in each of the people here and those that are participating over the internet. Lord, we confess we are people of affinity. We want life to work our own way. We want everybody to see things like we see it through our eyes, through our perspective. And, uh, and Lord, like uh, a lot of times um, we're so blinded to how we expect people just to cater to us. And so, Lord, forgive us. Open, uh, open our eyes and, and, and make us aware when, um, when we do that and when we, and we, uh, when we gather ourselves together in ways that, we ostracize those who you've brought us to, um, to who you've drawn to yourself through through our witness. Um, we pray that, um, that this church would be uh, a light in the midst of darkness for this community. And uh, God, if there are cliques or fractions here that would drive people away instead of drawing them to you, uh, forgive us, Lord, and help us to find those things and and, and rid them so that we can be the, the people you call us to be. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.